Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. A very special guest this week, Senator Rand Paul. We're going to talk about the new book that he's written with his wife, Kelly, The Case Against Socialism. We're also going to drink some fine Kentucky bourbon, and we're going to take down this evil philosophy step by step. Check it out. Senator, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Uh, we have a lot to plow through. I understand that Mitch McConnell is holding the sword of Damocles over us with his <laughs> gavel. So we're, we're going to sort of power through the entire critique of socialism in just a couple of minutes. But if, if I can, let me ask you, how's, how's your health? I think everybody knows about the attack, but they're, but they're wondering how you're doing. You know, uh, I'm getting better. Uh, I thought I was completely better, and then I had a setback this summer and had to have part of my lung removed, and uh, then got really, really sick and had to go back in the hospital. But uh, you know, it'll take more than that to keep me down. You know, Matt, I'm I'm a fighter, yeah. so I'll, I'll be back, and I'm I'm gaining more strength each day. Well, we want you to be in the fight specifically about uh, the the book and the reason that you and your wife Kelly wrote the book, The Case Against Socialism. And I have a super cool, hard to find pre. Um, this this may be illegal in multiple states even to have. This. Only if you show it to someone. Yeah, only yes. if we. Or show if you it. try to resell it. Yeah. You know. So. Well, I, I assume I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this on eBay as soon as I can. But the case against socialism, and I have to say, I was saying this before. Um, this is kind of one-stop shopping if you want to understand the economics and the history and the grisly violence and the body count. And, and even um, taking a look at, at why young people are sort of romanced by this thing, um, this is the one place that people can get that. It's an impressive feat that you guys have accomplished. Yeah, and one of the funny responses that people come up to me and they say, well, gosh, it shouldn't really be necessary. Yeah. You know, they're like, and I kind of think that too, you know, we've all read like Mises' Socialism and all these critiques of socialism, and yet it's like, Unfortunately, it is necessary. The, uh, the new generation didn't read that, didn't pay attention to history, might have something to do with the government schools that taught this generation. But I'm very worried. You know, when you see polling that says over half of young people think socialism would be a good idea, and it's like, really? They, they, they haven't heard about what socialism did last century? Yeah. But, but I think they probably haven't heard, right? They, they didn't get it in school. I think they have no idea. They have no idea. And in fact, I think if you ask people, you know, was Hitler a socialist, they'd probably say, oh, no, he was a capitalist. That was capitalism run amok. Yeah. And we talk a little bit about that in the book because even the political spectrum, you would say, well, the political spectrum is benign. That's just objective teaching of history. Well, not exactly, because whoever devised the spectrum once upon a time decided to put Hitler over here and Stalin over here. Instead, they're really the two forms of the same thing, both socialist. One is national socialism and racism and, you know, uh, the racial violence of Hitler. And the other one is a different type of socialism, but it's nevertheless equally as violent. Yeah. Yeah, that that chapter. And and I know we're all arguing about this now. And, and the left loves to compare everybody to Hitler. But the you prove fairly conclusively, you document the fact that, that Hitler... You know, before there was something called fascism, um, same with Mussolini as well. They were they were socialists and right. and they were really fighting about power as opposed right. to ideology. Well, and even Hitler was very he was very proud that his was a unique form of socialism. It wasn't that it wasn't socialism. It wasn't Bolshevik socialism, and he hated the Bolsheviks. 
but his was a unique. His was he he tied nationalism to socialism. Yeah, and he he wanted to skip over sort of the the class struggle and all the malaise that happened and all the stuff that happened. And you know when the Bolsheviks took over from the Czars, he wanted to skip that and just take the unification of all of Germany, sort of uh, Greater Germany, Greater Ubermensch, the Superman, etc. He wanted to skip over the bad part and just have national socialism. But in the end, both Stalin socialism and Hitler socialism end up having some, for some reason, some commonality. Millions of people had to die. Yeah, yeah. So Mises, in, and I think it was in the, the book Liberalism, he, he talks about that the flavor is different, right? So, so Marxism, socialism tries to divide people by class horizontally, right. and, then, and then fascism tries to divide people by, right. by race or religion or ethnicity. I think you're exactly right, but I think it's also there was a purposeful intent by historians and political scientists to make sure that Hitler wasn't a socialist. I mean, it was a concerted effort because they, they saw what Hitler did, and yeah. people began to know about the Holocaust before they knew about what Stalin was doing, but they wanted to make sure socialism is good, Hitler is bad, we're not associated with it. If he was a socialist also, then they have some explaining to do, and then, you know, we don't really hear fully about Stalin's pogroms in the millions till fine well we were hearing about it but until Khrushchev finally admits in the 60s how bad it was and we still continue to learn for another decade how many millions of people were killed under Stalin yeah I mean one one good one of the good news today if if you want to call it that is that those the way that that Mao's body count and Stalin's body count were were just erased from history until recently um, that's harder for someone like Nicolas Maduro to pull off because we we see the video. Right. One of the quotes that I think we have in the book, but I came across, was that somebody said what the one of the greatest um, sort of advancements towards poverty in the world that Mao was part of, he, one of the most fantastic things he did that alleviated poverty was dying. You know, because yeah. he was one of the greatest purveyors of famine and poverty. And another statistic I read recently was like 100 million people died from famine in the 20th century, and like 80% of them were from collectivization, socialism, you know, taking the farms. Yeah. Um, so let's let's take a second break here and, and get some bourbon because you are the senator from Kentucky. Well, and, of course. And you're it, wouldn't, it wouldn't really be a bourbon sipping if we weren't talking about how bad socialism was and how good bourbon is. And right? I just want to point to, to everybody that watches Kibbe on Liberty. I'm drinking bourbon. With Rand Paul talking Austrian economics and socialism, this this is this is kind of cool for me. Well, and if later on Matt is uh, slurring his words, he hasn't iced his down at all. See, I've diluted mine just a little bit so I don't slur my words later in the interview. Yeah, I mean, ice is acceptable, but but just barely. That's true. The purists say no ice, and you shouldn't pollute your good bourbon. And apparently, this is good bourbon this, we've got today. This is good so. bourbon, but of course, all Kentucky bourbon is good bourbon. Um, I, I, I want to take a step back because all of my favorite economists are are mentioned and and documented in, in the intellectual and historical case against socialism in your book. Um, where did you um, you just you talk about Mises and Hayek and Rothbard and and all of these guys that very much influenced my intellectual background. What's your, what's your framework? I have a theory as to where you got these ideas from. 
Well, some of it might have had to do with my father. You know, I grew up with uh, a library full of Mises and Hayek and Rothbard. I actually only got to meet one of them. I met Murray Rothbard on several occasions. My dad used to have an intern program where he'd invite all the interns on the Hill to speakers. And one of his speakers one year is Murray Rothbard. I'm still doing the same thing. We don't have Murray Rothbard anymore, but we've had Matt Kibbe come and talk to our interns. And it's an they, exciting. They were, they were doing the wave. Yeah, they were doing the of. wave. I think you did. You were the first one to do the body surf thing, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, but no, I think that, and it's one of the things that I'm first one to admit. I don't think I've discovered any new economic uh, theory with this, but I think I've made it readable. But I've tried to bring in some of the great insights of both Hayek and Mises and Rothbard, and they really had a lot to say, even about issues that really weren't as big then that are bigger now, like income inequality. We have a couple chapters on that, but Mises had stuff to say about income inequality. Hayek had it, and one of the things that Hayek said, and it's a little bit hard to get this out to people, but it's, I think, an incredible point. If you want everybody to have equal outcomes, you have to treat them unequally. So the law, so if, if you're better at something and you sell more of your goods and you have twice as much money, but we want to be equal and we're going to have equal amounts of income, somehow the law is going to have to treat you worse than it treats me. And it's something I don't think that socialists quite get because most of these people come from the left and they're for equal protection. The law should treat everybody equally. But you can't have equality of outcome unless you treat people differently because people have different merits and people have different ability to sell things and different talents. And I think if we could get that point across to them that because they're all for fairness and then they think fairness yeah. is equality, but they don't realize that, one, it's going to take violence by whoever has to be the equality police or the fairness police. They're going to have to come in and redistribute things through violence. But it's also going to take an unequal law, a law that treats people based on who they are, how well they do, and, and treats people differently, doesn't treat people equally under the law. Yeah, there's a... There's a chapter later in your book where you point out, and I, I feel like you're talking to some of our progressive friends, that socialism, uh, besides the economics, socialism is particularly oppressive to free spirits and artists, and, and speech itself right. um, cannot cannot be tolerated because of that dynamic you're talking about. If, if everyone's equal, it means that everyone is equally oppressed. Right. And I think there's also a scheme of things, sort of a, a gradation from uh, no socialism or all capitalism to all socialism. And, you know, we're somewhere sort of in the middle. And one of the points I want to make is that people who argue for some sort of uh, kinder, gentler socialism is that maybe it's not possible, but it's particularly not possible the more socialism you get. And there is a point at which people will resist. So if you tax me 50 percent of my income, oh, that's right, I could be in America today. And people resist to a certain extent. We vote for people to lower our taxes, but we don't necessarily rebel or have violent rebellion. But if you tell me or I tell Matt and Terry Kibbe that you're going to have six families now that live within your house and we're going to come and take the deed to your house, there is a point at which people resist. And then the question is, we have to get a leader. Socialists will need a leader that is efficient at taking your house and can suppress your resistance. And so then the question is, Stalin isn't, you know, they say he's an accident or Castro's an accident. Yeah. Maybe they're inherent. And as Hayek says, he says, well, you know what? Maybe the best socialist leader is the most ruthless. So you're actually selecting for ruthlessness because to take people's property, you have to be ruthless ultimately. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that actually naturally sort of leads to Pol Pot, who um, arguably was the most ruthless, um, influenced by Marxist professors in Paris. Um, he 
maybe was trying to implement as quickly as possible the purest form of socialism. And he managed to kill, uh, by most estimates, one in four people in a four-year period, which is just, it's unimaginable. Grotesque. Yeah. But his... His experiment was was explicitly violent because he knew he had to knock people out of, and Marx actually talked a lot about the violent nature of socialism because you, you have to force people to stop doing what they're doing. You have to force them out of this idea that, right. that education and production and creativity and entrepreneurship are good things and, and that the shock of just shooting people in the streets was part of the model. Right. And I think um, we have a quote in the book from Solzhenitsyn, who had seen sort of this kind of state violence up close. And he, uh, and I can't, I can paraphrase it only, but to say that you can have one-off violence where you get sort of a bad leader, but if it becomes an ideology and it's led by an ideology and it has this uh, fervent sort of almost religious belief, then you can kill millions. You can kill one or two people with a terrible leader. Yeah. If you want to kill millions, it has to be uh, a vi- an ideology, basically, of violence. Yeah. I think the most compelling thing that that you and Kelly do in this book is you tell stories. And you have a friend, an ophthalmologist, uh, Dr. Ming Wang, um, who happened to be on the wrong side of the Great Leap Forward and the cultural, I guess the cultural revolution. Right. Is he when was he born was born in 1960, up. so he's about three years older than me. We're both ophthalmologists, both practice sort of in the same area. But when he was uh, 14 or so, so early 1970s, I guess the Cultural Revolution probably starts before then, but still at the point when he gets to the age of high school, the people are given a choice of either you have to go into internal exile or if you stay, you have to you can't go to school. There was like one child could go to school, one child had to be exiled, but it was, in, it was just sort of absolute for millions of people. And, you know, he tried to go to school. His dad they were both doctors and he would try to go to sneak into his dad's uh, like biology or anatomy classes and learn secretly. They caught him doing that yeah. and forbidding from that. But really, I think some people, the people who really believe in this kinder, gentler socialism need to read the story of his mom. His mom was had a lab. She was a doctor and a scientist. And when the Red Guard came and the Red Guard were not only uh, explicitly from the government, they were sort of quasi sort of uh, mobs. Uh, she ran to her lab to save her experiments. And it's like, you know, it, it, it sort of your spine tingles thinking about this. They beat her within an inch of death with clubs. Yeah. And they did this to artists. They did this to all kinds of people. She laid in bed for two years as her bones just healed naturally. No surgery, no splints, no straightening the bones. And uh, just to, to imagine that and... But the pushback from the left is, oh, that's not what we want. Although, historically, when you look back, the American left and the intellectuals thought Stalin was fine. They visited Russia and thought things were fine. They accepted what they were told. Uh, even some visited Hitler the same way. They visited Mao and they excused it. But then when things turn bad and people figure out how bad it is, like, oh, that's not really what I meant. I really like Castro. Yeah. Till Castro turns bad or till Chavez turns bad. And that's why then a big part of this book is then going, what is their big mantra now? It's Swedish socialism, Scandinavian socialism we like. And I think it's important to debunk because this is main, This is uh, Bernie's main go-to. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really want the gulag. He wants socialism without the gulag, which may or may not be possible. But Scandinavia is not a good example of socialism. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a whole section here which um, I think people can use as talking points, explaining that that this, the Scandinavian countries, by and large, their experiments in socialism were abandoned a long time ago, and right. they've replaced it 
with markets, lower capital, uh, lower taxes on businesses, and right. and fewer labor regulations. They they do a lot of things that that would make Alexandria Ocasio's head explode. Yeah, and there's a there's a bunch of big lies. I'd say there's probably two or three big lies that people need to know about this. The the number one big lie is Bernie says that if you become richer, I must become poor. That the economic pie is not getting bigger for everybody. If a corporation makes money that they're greedy and terrible and they're taking it from you and we should burn the mansion down and get those people and redistribute the money and it's like Nothing could be further from the truth. The economic pie of the world, I think, has doubled eight times in the last 200 years. Poverty's plummeting. Uh, Humanprogress.org, we quote from them a lot. They do a lot of great research. But it's a big lie that when the rich get richer, the poor get richer, poor get poor. Everybody's getting richer. Yeah. Second big lie, he says the top 1% can pay for everything. You can have a welfare state, free school, free paid leave, free cars, you name it, free everything. And we'll get it all from the top 1%. But when you look at Scandinavia, they have a lot of that so-called free stuff. It isn't true. They actually have a less progressive tax code, meaning the middle class pays much higher taxes. In Scandinavia, there's a 25% sales tax from everybody, from dollar ones. That means the poor, the middle class, 25%. And the income tax is 60%, starting around 60000 So it isn't true. What he's actually wanting here is not what they have in Scandinavia. And then... You mentioned the taxes. He claims, oh, we want he wants to be Scandinavian socialism, but they've had lower corporate income taxes, almost half of what we pay here yeah. for 20, 30 years now. Yeah. And and by the way, that's working there. Exactly. And that's why they're doing well. They also have private property, private stock exchange. The economic indexes rank uh, Scandinavia as being really in the top 10 freest countries, not, not yeah. in the top 10 socialists. In fact, one of the pushbacks to him is when he says, oh, Denmark's socialist, very quickly the prime minister of Denmark says, no, no, we're not. He's afraid uh, people want to do business in, in Denmark are going to be like, they won't come here because they think we're socialist and we're not. Yeah. So, Bernie, you need to pipe down you know, about what you're saying about our country. You know, another, um, another section in the book that I don't think a lot of people will have read before is the, is the chapter on eugenics. And the history of sort of the intellectual movement, um, you know, er, early true progressivism and eugenics were were very much hand in hand, and it was it was that elitist top down. Right. We're actually going to reengineer right. the human being. Right. It's yeah. They, I think you could say it's not true that all socialists were eugenicists, but it is true that almost all eugenicists were socialists. Yeah. And uh, eugenics basically is this belief that people with uh, lesser genetics or lesser DNA or imperfections should be excluded, either by not letting them be born or by eliminating them. And so uh, Margaret Sanger, uh, founder of Planned Parenthood, was big on big on eugenics. So were a lot of pretty famous people. Most of them were also socialist at the yeah. same time. And it's because of, and I, th I think this is an important thing. Once again, people say, oh, that was just an accident of history. We no longer have that. But really, is it an idea that the individual doesn't matter, that the collective's important? And if the hive could be better if we eliminated the lesser people in the hive, it's about the hive. Whereas those of us who believe in capitalism and individual liberty say it's all about the individual. Now, the collective does very well if you give the individual liberty. And so it really is the most prosperous form of an economic equation. But we do it because of the liberty part, not necessarily because of the prosperity part. But in the other, when you care only about the hive, you get neither the prosperity nor the liberty. Yeah. Yeah. They, 
they they treat us as pieces of a puzzle or just you know inputs into a, a meat grinder kind of thing. I've, I've watched Marxist professors sort of assume away the individual and the behavior, and and that's what I guess that's what Hayek would call a fatal conceit, and it it applies to everything, even like trying to re-engineer the human race. And I didn't know that John Maynard Keynes also the infamous uh, <laughs> father of really bad macroeconomics was a eugenicist as well. So there's kind of a rogues gallery there. Right. And, and then when Hitler came along, they're like, whoa, whoa. That's oh, right. I didn't mean I that. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But many of them were for forced sterilization of the people they thought were less than perfect. Um, many of them, and you still have some people like this, uh, Dr. Watson, you know, of Watson and Crick of DNA, I think he was the one who said, well, Really, you could wait a few days to see what the kids like, but why don't we wait a year to see if they really have what it takes to be very useful in society and at a year determine whether or not we're keeping them or not. Yeah. And that leads to sort of this grisly nature because then it's usually not individuals also deciding this. Then is the government making the definition of who's useful and who's not. Okay, I see. I see that Mitch McConnell is causing this trouble. <laughs> uh, but I want to. I want to. I want to close out with this because clearly, um, I'm. I'm imagining this is so. You and your wife Kelly probably spent a significant amount of time talking about this and seeing this this looming threat to America like why why did you guys decide to do this I think we both became very aware you know we're around a lot of young people young groups speaking on college campuses uh, and seeing it on television as well that the youth just seems to be going rapidly to the left but then it becomes worrisome if they're if it's just sort of you know, ideas that make no sense and they'll eventually learn better. But now they're really embracing the the term socialism and the idea. And then some people say, well, they don't really know what it is. They just kind of like it and it sounds cool and it sounds fair. But socialism does mean something. Whether they understand what it means or not, we need to help them to understand um, that really there isn't a kinder or gentler form of socialism, that violence is inherent, it's an inevitability, and the more socialism you get, the more violence you have to have because people will resist you taking their freedom. Um, if if someone wanted to buy this book, is, is it available on the marketplace? Where, where would you get a we copy of this book? We decided to actually, yes, put it out there and being available it's for very, the public. It's a very capitalist approach. Yes, you can get it on the internet through any of the booksellers. You can go to your local bookstore, but The Case Against Socialism is out there. Uh, Kelly and I are very proud of it, but we're also hoping that it helps influence uh, our next generation. Jefferson said every generation has to water the tree of liberty, and in order to water the tree, you have to know a little bit about what makes the tree grow. Well, we're going to paper the tree at least. (laughs) Thank you, Senator. Thank you. And cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.